The Bible readings are Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel chapter 39. The theme of these two chapters is that of the northern invaders, which will come down as the prophecy teaches us in the word of the Lord to invade God's land of Israel. It's generally considered by most Bible commentators that these two chapters are the most difficult passages of Scripture in the whole of the Bible to expound. Uh, and having looked at them, I would agree wholeheartedly with their comments. So why not just skip this chapter and move on? Because they are the two most important chapters regarding prophetic studies. And so therefore it's necessary for us to get as much information as possible about them. The first thing we need to grasp is that God still has a plan for Israel. And the, the plan that consists is that of a remnant of Israel being restored to their God and to their land in the last days. There are many today who would teach that God is finished completely with his people Israel and that the term Israel is just a spiritual term signifying God's people today, the church, the church of Jesus Christ. I don't need to tell you that I completely disagree with this erroneous suggestion because quite simply it's not biblical. Throughout the Bible when God speaks about, about national Israel he means Israel and no one else. So why would that suddenly change in chapters 38 to 40? And this is crucial to our understanding of prophecy. But secondly, not only does God have a plan for Israel, God has a plan for Israel's enemies. And it's utterly amazing that Israel's enemies today are the ones that were enemies of them way back in days long gone. Now, we must also understand that none of these scriptures that we're about to look at have been fulfilled fully. While it's true that some of the prophecies in the early chapters of the book of Ezekiel may have seen partial fulfillment, none of these latter chapters fall into that category. Now, I trust you don't fall into the ever-growing category of evangelical believers who no longer look for the Saviour's return. Instead, that they think this is an old-fashioned notion that quite simply is out of date. So I'm told frequently, listen, Jesus Christ will come again. And it may be sooner than we think. No one knows the day or the hour. But we can be certain of one thing, it is nearer today than it's ever been before. The rapture, first of course, when the church is translated to glory, leaving a world to face God's judgment. The Bible tells us very clearly that there will be an invasion of Palestine, of Palestine by a wicked nation from the north in the latter days. So firstly, let's consider the nation's identity. Scripture tells us that the invaders' identity is Gog and Magog. Now it would seem that Gog is referring to a leader of a group of people, or most likely a nation of people called Magog. So the question is, who is Magog? 
What is the identity of the nation that will invade Israel one day? Now, I don't want to be dogmatic this evening. I can only share things with you as I understand them. There are three main stepping stones of evidence and proof that I believe helps us to identify this nation called Magog. Firstly, there's the geographical evidence. In three, in three distinct places, Ezekiel tells that the invading nation will come from the north. Chapters 38, verse 6, chapter 39, verse 2, and chapter 39, verse 15. To translate it literally, this nation will come from the uttermost parts of the north. Now, there's a general rule that we must adhere to when we're studying any of the Old Testament prophets. We must remember that all geographical directions are from their point, their standpoint, in the Middle East. So, when they are talking about the north, they're not standing at the side of the fourth, looking north. They're standing in Israel, and they're looking around their geographical scene as it was in days gone by. Now, if Ezekiel is taking his bearings from the homeland, a quick glance at any world map, there is only one place that can fulfill the prophecy, and that's Russia. If you go any further, you're in the Arctic. Now, unless Ezekiel was talking of a few Eskimos, seals, or polar bears, I firmly believe that he is speaking about the nation of Russia. And we're not moving borders to make this story fit. There is no other country north of Israel at the uttermost parts of the globe. It's interesting that three years ago, roughly, Russia was almost courting Israel for a closer relationship politically. Then there's the historical evidence. Now, if we were to look at Genesis 10, verse 1, you will find the generations of the sons of Noah. Sham, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Unto them were, were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. And so it continues. But in verse 2, up pops Magog, the same Magog that is in Ezekiel. He is the second son of Japheth. So he is the grandson of Noah. Jubel and Meshech are also mentioned. They are the fifth and sixth sons of Japheth. When Noah came out of the ark following the flood, and his sons and his sons' sons, they were the people who populated the earth. We are all from the lineage of Noah. Now, Jophesus, the first century historian and scholar, his works are a treasure trove, assures us that the descendants of Magog migrated north of Palestine. In Josephus' time, there were historical records done in the 5th century BC by the Greek historian Herodotus. To prove this, Josephus wasn't a liar and he wasn't a believer in God, he wasn't even a political scholar, but he makes this statement we Magog and the area north of Palestine. So we have two reliable records from two reliable and knowledgeable sources. Enough to prove something in a court of law. Move on a few years to Jerome, 
who was an early church father and prominent leader from A.D. 340 to A.D. 420. He places Magog north of the Caucasus Mountains, which in today's world are in Russia. Jerome and other more secular historians maintain that Magog migrated from Palestine northward right over these mountains and settled there. So we have at least three historic, accurate records that tell us the nation or the people of Magog settled north of Palestine, north of Asia, into what now known, is known as Russia. Now just to add another component to the mix, Josephus and other Greek historians associate Magog with the Scythian race. They occupied for a time territory in the vicinity of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and over the Caucasian mountains firmly traced to and placed in Russia. So we have the geographical proof and the historical proof. Now here's a wee thing to note. The word Caucasus literally means Gog's Fort. Now those who are critical and try to tear down the reality of the scriptures say that the people you speak of can be traced to parts of Turkey, Ukraine, Armenia, but only a tiny portion of Russia. Am I concerned? No. God is not bound by present geographical borders. Who would ever have imagined that the mighty USSR would have fallen apart? Mr. Putin is determined to bring many states which came out as a result of the USSR's demise and bring them back under Russian control. Will he succeed? I wouldn't bet against it. Now we need to consider the invaders' allies. It's not just Russia on her own. Oh no, there are five other nations which will join this northern confederacy during this massive invasion of Israel. Verses 5 and 6, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Goma, and all the bands of the house of Togarma. That's the rogues' gallery as they were in Ezekiel's day. Now, can we actually equate these names in today's terms? It's not altogether straightforward, but we can just about work it out. Persia, easy. Modern-day Iran, ruled by Islamic fundamentalists, including a very powerful and well-equipped regime with nuclear weapons, with the very public threat being made frequently to drive Israel into the sea. They promise a complete annihilation of the Jewish state, and Iran are being armed by Russia. Ethiopia. Now, you may be thinking, wait a wee minute, Ethiopia is in Africa. But the country being spoken of here is not the place where famine has been for many decades. Biblical Ethiopia is an entirely different nation. And just for your interest, when you come across Kush or Put, these literally translated mean black North African nations. So if we want to pick a country in the world to correlate with Ezekiel of the biblical world, it would have to be Sudan. And Sudan also, or at least one part of it, is dominated by fundamentalist Islamic government. 
that crucifies Christians in an attempt to establish a pure Islamic state. The third nation is Libya. She is the western neighbor of Egypt. It also is an increasingly fundamentalist Islamic state. It is strongly anti-Western and also anti-Israeli, and Western intelligence tells us that the ex-Soviet and Eastern European scientists are aiding Libya in her development of nuclear weapons. Then we come to Goma. Now, the nation of Goma is a little, best, a little less distinct in understanding who she is. But the Jewish Talmud would tell us that Goma equates. Who do you think with? Geographically, Germany. It's no surprise that the German government attempts to disguise the increase of anti-Semitism in recent years. But then we come to the final group of people, all the bands of the house of Togama. Again, this corresponds to southern Russia, especially to the Cossacks. Also, all but the central part of Turkey. If we consider Josephus again, he identified it as the Phrygians, who settled in Cappadocia, which is now in eastern Turkey. I think we can say that Turkey will be involved considerably in the last days. Turkey was on the very brink of joining NATO, but has now, under the present government, turned instead towards Islam and is becoming an increasingly fundamentalist Islamic state with a deep, deep hatred of all things Jewish. Chapters 38, verses 10 and 11. Thus says the Lord God, it shall come, also come to pass, that at the same time shall things come into mind, and you shall have an evil thought, and you shall say, I will go up to the land of the unwalled villages, and I will go to them who are at rest, who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, having neither bars nor gates. Now, Russia will cast her eyes in the Middle East. They will look at Israel. They will believe that all is very straightforward. Israel is at peace. There will be no walls around the city. It will be a time of plunder. Now it gets interesting. Think of this. Israel has suffered millennia of persecution, and it's been constant. Always someone offering them peace. Of course, their peace will come at a cost. If we look at verse 13, there are nations that will rise up and will oppose Russia's invasion of Israel. Sheba, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish. And they will aggravate and antagonize the northern peoples coming down to invade. We believe that Sheba and Dedan are most likely Arab nations that have become sympathetic to Israel's cause. The only two that I can think of at the present moment is Jordan and Saudi Arabia. But who are the merchants of Tarshish? If we look at scripture, Tarshish is identified as far as Western Europe. It definitely includes part of Spain, but going further that back in history, we have to look also at etymology, study of words. And what we do find is very interesting. 
Those who have studied that in any great de detail would suggest strongly that Tarshish also signifies the British Isles. Now you may, be th you may think that's astounding, but let's just try to make it clear. We know from Phoenician records that they obtained tin from Tarshish. The, the Latin name of Britannia means land of tin, and it would all fit cosily together, but I'm not going to be 100% dogmatic about it. It's worth a thought. Britain throughout history has not been squeaky clean with regards to Israel. However, it had a hand in the independence of Israel and the renewal of Israel as a state in 1948. All these things would seem to mirror events that are taking place even today. So we have the invaders' allies. Thirdly, we have in this passage the invaders' intentions. I think it's quite clear that Russia will lead the future invasion of the northern nations into Israel that is taught in these two chapters. But some people would ask why. Firstly, anti-Semitism. Russia, even before communism, persecute, per persecuted the Jews ruthlessly. The Jews were cut down simply because they were Jews. I read this week of a, sin a sinister group called Pamyat, which is anti-Semitic to the core. They pride themselves in the fact that their mandate states the expulsion of Jews legally or otherwise, even including execution. Strangely, they accused the Jews of being a source of AIDS. Not surprisingly, these ominous trends and echoes think, make us think back to Nazi Germany. A mass exodus of Jews have left Russia and are now back in the land. But there has been a steady stream since 1990, leaving and heading home. Secondly, the Russians believe an invasion of Israel would raise their status as a military power. After the breakup and collapse of the USSR, the Russians have always wanted to restore its status as a superpower, according to the, the Independent Intelligence Agency. So of so much so, many of the former officers of the old regime still believe, and many are still in power, that this will become a reality and they will do anything to prove it. Russia now has military bases in the Middle East. She is openly backing the nations who are sworn enemies of Israel. And not only that, it is now compulsory for their young people in school to learn Arabic as their second language. Thirdly, Russia would want to cash in on Palestine's riches. Verse 12 speaks about the northern invader taking the spoil, taking the prey. There is oil, but there's a far greater source of wealth. You might be surprised to find out what it is, the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is full of minerals. Apparently the extent of it is, is such that it's impossible to put a value to it in today's terms. It's estimated that the Dead Sea contains 2 billion tons of potassium chloride, potash, which can make the worst of soil fertile. Not just fertile, it makes anything grow lavishly. At a conservative guess, there are 22 billion tons of magnesium chloride, 
12 billion tons of sodium chloride, 6 billion tons of calcium chloride, and in addition to that, all of that, it has cerium, cobalt, manganese, even gold in the Dead Sea. Now can you understand why they want to invade Israel? But there's more. Chapter 38, verse 4, God says, I will turn you back. And he says to Russia, I will put hooks in your jaws. Now what's that? Think of fishing. It's a bait. What is the bait that God is using to bring this northern nation into his God-given nation? It is the bait of riches and the bait of the wealth of Israel. But there's a fourth reason. They want to control the Middle East. If you check the history books, you will find that the ancient conquerors have always known that if they could conquer Palestine, they could control Europe, Asia, and Africa, or at least the ways into them all. It brings together three continents, and it's often called the Middle East Bridge. Fifthly, the northern, the northern invader will want to occupy Israel to challenge the authority of the Antichrist. Daniel 11, verses 40 to 41, we read this. At the time of the end shall the king of the south, that is Egypt, uh, come and, and push at him. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, that I believe is Russia, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships, and shall enter into the countries, and shall overflow and pass over. This is the nation's, this invader's nation's intentions. Now, this brings us to the final point, this raider's impending doom. Now, I believe that this invasion will take place in round about the middle of the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year period of tribulation that will come upon the earth once the church has been received into glory. I say that because it's only at that point that Israel may find herself at rest with defences down. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist will come forth as some kind of godlike rule. He will promise peace. He will make a peace treaty with his people, with God's people Israel. He will promise that they will be guarded. He will make a covenant with them. And he, he will be allowed to take part and to more or less control their security. And for a time he will bring peace. To such an extent, the nation who are the best defended on the, on, on the earth will be convinced to lay down their arms, and she will. The other nations of the world will tire of Antichrist's rule and will rise up against him and against Israel. Chapter 39 tells us that the defeat of Gog and Magog is affected by the following events, and it's God who causes them, not the Antichrist. Chapter 38 19 to 20, tells us there'll be a mighty earthquake. Chapter 38, verse 21, tells us of some confusion or mutiny among the invaders, so much so they will turn against each other. Now how could that be? Well, this Russian Federation is made up with all sorts of ethnic groups, and so much so that civil infighting could easily be an issue. Chapter 38, verse 22, tells us that there will be a plague among the northern aggressors. 
there will be floods, there will be great hailstones, there will be fire, there will be brimstone. Chapter 39, verse 2 says that 85% of the Russian invaders will be destroyed. Who by? God will do that. And the scriptures go on to tell of how the corpses will lie around the mountains of Palestine and they will become the grisly feast of the birds of the air and the wild animals that come and eat the carrion. Is this Armageddon? I don't think so. It may be an ongoing battle which will conclude with the battle of Armageddon where the slaughter will be even greater. The word of the Word of God goes on to teach us that seven months will be spent burying the dead and destroying the weapons of war. And it will be a difficult job because some of these weapons will be hefty and difficult to dismantle. That being so, some of these activities will probably run over into the millennial reign of Christ. Is that a problem? I don't think so. Because what does the Bible say about the millennium? Swords will be turned into plowshares. You may well disagree with me here, but I'll gladly shake your hand and agree to differ. Now let me remind you why all of this should happen. Through it all, God's purpose is to glorify himself before his own people and the nations of the world. In chapter 38, verses 16 and 23, in chapter 39, verses 13, 21, and 22, God says this, that the nations of the world, my people and the heathen, may know that I am the Lord. Joseph Stalin once said these horrendous words, we have deposed the czars of the earth, and we shall now dethrone the God of heaven. In response, God's response is this, I will make my holy name, verses 13, chapter 39, verse 7, I will make my holy name not known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will let, not let them pollute my holy name any longer. And the heathen shall know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. I often listen to leaders of godless nations making all kinds of, thought, of threats. I listen to the scientists as they try to dismiss God from the universe and more that He create more of the created wonders that He made. I hear so-called ministers and pastors and theological students trying to dismiss the Word of God and trying to pass it on as just being well, maybe a good book. They'll tell us that Genesis is not history, it's just poetry. They'll try to bring God down to their level, and in doing so, they'll blaspheme his holy name. And I think to myself, how it must break the heart of God. Those whom he created in his image. What they are now doing to cut him out of society and of their lives completely. But God in due time will call in the outstanding bill. The Bible is concise. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wait for it. To the glory of God the Father. Who said that? God did. The heathen will know that Jesus Christ 
is Lord. We are living in exciting times. We are seeing some aspects of Bible prophecy fulfilled in our lifetime. And in that sense, we are very privileged. And as we see things gathering momentum, and as we see the nations of the world seemingly plunging headlong into confrontation not too far away, there are two things that we can do. We can cower away in fear and in dread and shut ourselves from the world, or we can lift up our heads because we know that our redemption draws nigh. When these things are seen to be happening, and the seeds of them only may be there, or maybe even just the first sprouts of what will grow, that God will deal with, we are very privileged. We must be very careful that we don't force today's events to fit what the Bible says. But I don't think we do that on this occasion. God has his timetable. And God has his plan. And God's will will be done for his glory.